Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Fold from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Britta Nath, and this is The Daily Download. Today's episode features an interview with former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Director Richard Cordray. Cordray served for six years as the first director of the CFPB, and before joining the Bureau, he served as Ohio's Attorney General. In this interview, Cordray explains why he thinks the industry needs to redefine how they look at foreclosures by sharing lessons from the past, how the biggest challenges in the foreclosure process look now, and what the road ahead looks like as the industry figures out how to handle the fact that 8.8% of all U.S. mortgages are in forbearance. But before we get into the interview, here's a quick word from our sponsor. Extraordinary challenges demand extraordinary solutions. CoreLogic is uniquely positioned to help you navigate this historic disruption. Whether it's virtual home showings, flexible employment verifications, or automated loan modification engines, CoreLogic delivers the data-driven solutions, targeted insights, and deep domain expertise trusted by the nation's most successful mortgage lenders. Explore how CoreLogic can help you today. Visit corelogic.com forward slash COVID-19. First off, welcome to the podcast, Cordray. We're excited to have you on the daily download today to discuss your blog series on how the industry should look at foreclosures. And for anyone who hasn't read them yet, I would encourage you to go to housingware.com, go to our poll section and read all three in-depth pieces. Thank you. It's good to be with you and good to be speaking to the Housing Wire audience, which I know is a very dedicated group who know an awful lot about the mortgage and housing markets. We appreciate you saying that. And to jump in today's interview, I wanted to start with your first blog and get your input on what are the biggest takeaways or assumptions that people learned from the crisis and why are they important to remember now? Sure. The lead into the crisis of 2008, 2009 was a significant deterioration in the quality of underwriting for mortgages. Uh, We had no-doc loans. We had so-called ninja loans where people didn't feel in making the loan they had to care that much about the economic financial condition of the borrower because they could make two assumptions about the housing market that at that time were widespread and widely accepted. One was that housing values were very unlikely to uh, decline across the board, across the nation. There had been some localized declines here and there, especially when local economic conditions uh, turned bad in certain areas. We had a rust belt decline in the Midwest, for example, at at a couple different uh, epochs. Uh, But it was thought that the housing values would hold up because why? Because they had substantially uh, and consistently since World War II. Uh, However, that proved not to be the case. And when housing values crashed in 2008, it brought down the market and, in fact, the whole economy with it. The other assumption that people made at that time was not only that housing values would hold up, but that if they didn't, and if you had a problem property, you could always get your money back by selling the house, recovering the collateral through the foreclosure process, if need be, and that that was a working avenue of last resort. And in normal times, normal economic times with normal caseloads, it's not an easy way to get your money back, but it does work, you know, reasonably well. 
in terms of the investor and the loan holder. It doesn't work so great, of course, for the borrowers out from their home and their life is turned on end and they end up with credit blocks for years. Uh, but certainly uh, as a tool of last resort for investors, it was thought to work. And then, of course, with the extreme crash of 2008, 2009, and the volumes of backlogs in the courts, that foreclosure process didn't work at all as was expected. Even in non-judicial foreclosure states, it backed up significantly, and it made it very hard for investors to get their money back. That was the second assumption that went bad in that era. Now that you've broken down the big takeaways and assumptions that we need to remember, can you break down the points that you listed in your blog on how the internal dynamics of non-bank servicers pose two specific threats to implementing an effective foreclosure minimization strategy? Yeah, and and I started by looking backward a little bit. If you look back at the last crisis, what had happened, uh, the breakdown of the traditional lender-borrower relationship was when a borrower got a mortgage, And if they had problems years later, maybe they were laid off from their job and they didn't have income coming in, they would go back to the lender. They had a pre-existing relationship and they would try to work it through. The communication was easier. It was already settled. There was already a relationship and an understanding between the lender and the borrower. With the uh, separation of those two things through the securitization of the mortgage market uh, and servicing rights often being separate and sold uh, distinct from the loan holder uh, aspect of things, uh, that relationship broke down and it became very difficult to work these things through and to arrange the workouts again in the early teens. Uh, There was also so much ferment in the market, so many mortgage servicing rights being bought and sold and being transferred and some companies being taken over uh, that that further uh, deteriorated those relationships. The two things that we have to worry about now, it seems to me, in the current market uh, with mortgage workouts is, first of all, that for non-bank mortgage servicers, which cover close to half the market, between 40 and 50 percent of the market, they don't have the same tools in their toolbox uh, and resources that the banks have. The banks have lines of credit available to them, financing uh, vehicles of last resort. They can go to the Federal Reserve discount window. Uh, A lot of the uh, bank bailout money is directed at shoring up their operations. And they've been required to hold more substantial capital buffers over the last 10 years. That's been a regulatory change. But for monoline mortgage servicers and those that are not connected with banks, their financing is more uncertain, their liquidity is more uncertain, and that poses two problems, it seems to me. The first is that they are really at risk when they're not receiving payments from their borrowers. They have to front money to others, they have to front money for property taxes and insurance, but also they have to front the money to meet the mortgage obligations. And if they don't have that money available, they are gonna teeter on and fall into some of them into bankruptcy. And that will gum up the works in various ways. Those servicing rights will be stranded. They'll have to be reallocated. That won't be easy. There'll be high cost uh, servicing rights. And that's that's an issue and, and a problem. Uh, and so that's one problem is that they will push to get payments and they will try to avoid giving forbearance. And even where they're required to do so by law, Uh, or where it might be better practice for them to do so. There's a lot of pressure on them to try to avoid that, to try to insist on payments being made to them. So there's some question of whether they will be complying with the CARES Act requirements, and that's something that needs to be overseen by their regulators. 
But the second piece of it is that if they don't have enough financing, some of them will go bankrupt. This is something that we had raised at the Financial Stability Oversight Council a few years ago about the safety and soundness regime for non-bank mortgage servicers. And there's not a good regime in place. And that still is not in place. And now we're seeing that that's a difficulty in the current crisis. Uh, FHFA uh, and the, the other uh, state regulators are trying to work out uh, lines to, to give them a lifeline and give them some cushion, but they don't have it. They weren't required to build it up. Many of them lack it and we don't have good liquidity functions. That's gonna be a reform, a legislative reform that's gonna be needed in the wake of this crisis, it seems to me. It's not the time to be uh, crying over spilled milk right now, but it is a difficulty that we need to address before the next crisis comes along, and that's gonna be part of uh, congressional oversight, trying to think about how to learn from this crisis, just as we learned from the last one. Can you go deeper into the regulatory parts of this? And along with that, the other half of the question being, okay, if I'm a servicer, what can I do now knowing that there's oversight coming and what's happening in terms of soon coming oversight or current oversight? Yeah. And again, I think we can start by looking back at the last crisis. We learned from that that servicer processes were difficult when there was any significant volume of problem loans. And therefore, you can look forward at some point in the business cycle, we're going to come to the bottom of the business cycle, and there's going to be that problem recur. And there were regulations and other standards put in place. Part of this was from the National Mortgage Servicing Settlement. Part of it was from rules put in place by the CFPB. Part of it was by legislation to try to stiffen up the processes and make sure uh, that we did try to put in place a strategy that would make foreclosure more of a last resort and learn from that crisis. Now, as we see the situation for servicers, uh, first of all, they are required to meet those standards. They're gonna be held to account by the regulators, both state and federal. Uh, they have new requirements they have to meet that weren't in place before. The CARES Act has required many of them to grant mortgage forbearance. That may be difficult for them in their business conditions, but they are required to do it. Uh, I have said and said in my piece that one of the oversight mechanisms that's needed is to monitor their communications with borrowers who are looking for forbearance to make sure that they are granting it uh, pretty much on uh, no questions asked basis, which is how the CARES Act set it up in a very streamlined uh, way. Uh, but I think, I think a lot of mortgage servicers are going to be under pressure right now. Uh, I don't think it's hit just yet because even though unemployment has spiked with the unemployment benefit bonus, you actually saw that take-home pay, average take-home pay, household pay was up in April, which is very odd at the beginning of an economic collapse. That may still be true for a couple or three months, but then we're going to have a residual of high unemployment that's gonna last, it looks like, for at least a couple of years and maybe longer. We don't know how fast the recovery will be from this, but certainly there's going to be high unemployment lingering for a while. Uh, and I think it's going to be incumbent on the servicers to keep pressure on FHFA and Treasury to make sure it's understood that although they don't have the capital buffers in place, it would have been better business sense for them to do so, but they don't have those. Uh, we're going to need for the public good to have mechanisms provided to get us through this crisis. And then 
the servicers can be squared up in terms of you know paying or or putting in place capital buffers for the long haul so that we don't get into this uh, problem again. And I know last time we talked, we discussed the consumer complaint database. Can you touch on what some of the immediate threats right now are to servicers going forward or what they should keep in mind, especially since the complaint database is something that the CFPB is actively monitoring? That's a very good uh, question and issue to raise. And it is notable. The CFPB's consumer complaint database is a new phenomenon that didn't exist in the last crisis. And what it is, is it's in effect a real-time ability to diagnose what consumers are saying the problems are that they're facing uh, as they occur. You know, what often happens, especially in a, in a market as big as the mortgage market, and again, when we talk about the mortgage market, that, that hides a lot because it's really many local mortgage markets across the country, local real estate markets with different conditions uh, aggregated into total aggregate numbers. In order to really understand what's happening, often the data comes in and gets assembled and then gets analyzed with a significant lag. But the consumer complaint database is telling us right now today the problem that a consumer had yesterday. Uh, and so digging into that database and doing the running the analytics on it is very valuable because it's going to give us a much more up-to-date sense of how much pressure there is here, how services are handling it what kinds of problems they're running into, what kind of pattern of problems uh, borrowers are complaining about. Uh, and I think there's much to be learned from that. The other thing that's notable is if you're a mortgage servicer, you typically only know what your customers are telling you. To hear what's being said about other mortgage servicers in the market who may be handling things in a different way, maybe better, maybe worse, uh, is an important diagnostic that you can learn from as well. So I do think that's an important database for the regulators, both state and federal, it's a public database, they all can access it, but also for others in the, in the industry to see what's happening at their counterparts. And for my last question to wrap up today's podcast, since there's a lot of unknowns in the housing market, in the economy, what advice would you give a lender or a servicer today? Well, certainly there's a lot of market pressure right now, and there will continue to be uh, and everybody's going to be fighting to handle this well enough and stay in business. Uh, the more friendly you can be toward consumers, the more compliant you can be, the better off you are. But again, there are significant economic pressures that are making that hard. Uh, in the long run, the industry should itself insist on these reforms. They may not want to put together capital buffers, uh, but to have those in place and to have the certainty that provides to know that they have access to liquidity and, and to, to help, frankly, put buffers in place that will justify a liquidity facility for the catastrophic situation uh, is a bargain that's a fair bargain for the industry, but will give it a lot more certainty in the future. Uh, right now, I think it's a very, uh, a very dramatic and dangerous situation that many services are in, uh, and we could avoid this in the future, and we should, and that's what congressional reforms should look to uh, and should put in place so that we learn from the past, just as we did in the last crisis, we can do it again. Well, we've come to the end of today's podcast. I want to say thanks again for giving your input on these issues, Richard. I know this is a topic our audience has been closely following. And to our listeners, wanted to say thanks for listening as well. And we'll catch y'all here again tomorrow. Tomorrow.